John chapter 12, beginning at the first verse. This is the what we call traditionally now Holy Week. And we begin at the first verse. <clears throat> then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many believed of the Jews and went away and believed in Jesus. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Amen. We'll pause there. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to open your word to our hearts and minds, and we pray, Lord, that you, by your gracious spirit, would open our minds to your heart and word, that we might hear receive, believe, and uh, live according to what you have declared. Lord, work in us, we pray this day. Help us to hear your voice in the Holy Scriptures. For this we ask, Father, in the blessed name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The uh, triumphal entry is what this event is called when Jesus entered into uh, Jerusalem on that day, the last week of his present life until he was crucified and then he was to be raised again on the third day but as we read this it's actually recorded in all four of the gospels um, which is kind of interesting you know the, the if you're not familiar with how the gospels are set forth the first three are what's called the synoptic gospels uh, that's a, from a greek word that means to look at things kind of as one so matthew mark and luke seem to kind of cover almost like they had the same outline, but they each fill in things that the others don't say. So it's important to read all four Gospels. Sometimes one will have uh, tell you some little detail that the others left out. 
Matthew seems to be aware that his writers were probably Hebrews. Uh, Mark seems to write knowing that his readers were probably Gentiles. And Luke, he writes for the world in one's very real sense. But Luke is interesting because when he describes people who were sick, uh, that Jesus healed, Luke actually uses the, the medical terminology of the first century because Luke was a physician. So when he describes their conditions, there's usually a little more detail from Luke. Um, and then when you come to John, tradition tells us, early church history, and it's pretty unanimous, John wrote his gospel later in life after the other three gospels had been written and certified. They knew you know, where they'd come from. And the... Uh, church in Ephesus that asked John, please write down what you know about Jesus, if there's things, you know, there's things you've told us, teachings, and uh, we'd like to have that as a record, and on that basis it said that's why John wrote. So his gospel really is kind of different, but it, it fills in, it fits right in the timeline, but he'll often have dialogues and things Jesus said that just aren't in the other gospels, so it's a very unique book. So usually when you find something that's in all three, particularly a historical event like the triumphant entry, if it's in all four Gospels, that means there's something pretty special going on. The same thing happens with the feeding of the 5,000, uh, later in the 7,000. Those are included in all four Gospels, but many of the other things aren't. And John has a lot of things that he recorded that he felt were important, like the, the woman that was taken in adultery when Christ uh delivered her, you might say, but also called, told her, go and sin no more. But uh, the wonderful things like that, and just various, his dialogues when he was talking to Pontius Pilate, there's a lot more detail given in John. So we come to this triumphant entry. I read the first few verses before that to give us the historical setting. Jesus had come to Jerusalem, and when he got there, first he stayed at Bethany. Bethany was about two miles away from Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem, kind of in the shadow of the Mount of Olives. And so he went there, and he was staying at the house of uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary uh, as a guest. Later he stayed, you know, they kind of camped out, it seems, on at the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. That's why Judas knew where to take the mob to arrest Jesus uh, at the end of the week. But we have this prophecy that's given in verse 13. Actually, we start at 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And so we have this event recorded in the other Gospels also. It's re, uh, recorded in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, toward the, uh, around verse 35. We find they all three quote the, the passage. And if you go and compare them all, you can kind of get the the full quote when they were praising him. Uh, it was, uh, blessed is the yeah, Hosanna, Matthew has, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I'm reading from the old King James now. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means uh, save please or save now. It's, it, it's a prayer. Hosanna in the highest. And then Mark tells us, but uh, said, and each one you get three witnesses, you can get the whole thing. That's the idea. Uh, blessed is he that, or Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. So we understand they were expecting to see the kingdom of God immediately be manifested in, in the way they were thinking. They thought the Romans are going to be gone, we'll be on top of the nations, it'll be great. That Hosanna in the highest. Luke tell, tells us uh, that when they had 
come there, they, they said, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Kind of reflects the annunciation of the angels to the shepherds early on. So it came full circle. We said, well, which one did they say? Well, it's a crowd of people. They said all the things were being said by everybody. Uh, the gospel writers record what they were inspired to write. So we get the whole picture. But John then tells us, as we just read, they cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. So they identified Jesus as the king of Israel, the son of David. They're looking forward to the kingdom coming. There is excitement in Jerusalem. The sad part is it was because they heard of his miracles, not because they had necessarily listened well to his teachings uh, or had really fully believed in him. It does talk about people coming to faith in him, so we're not going to discredit that. Uh, you know, The miracles that Jesus did definitely helped some people get over the hurdles, you might say, from the blasphemy and the anger and the hatred of the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests. Uh, because they went out of their way to try to slander Jesus every chance they had. But the people saw through it. And when Jesus came, they just the exuberance and the zeal and the love they had, uh, because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that told them, this one, Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Messiah. And then when they call him the King of Israel, that's what they're saying. You know, a lot of times there's confusion, and you find among the Judeans, lots of, by the way, in your, in your Bibles, when in the particularly in the Gospels, when it refers to the Jews, contrasting it with the Samaritans or the you know from the Galileans, uh, it's really talking about the Judeans. It's not the Jewish people. It's the people who lived around Jerusalem. Uh, they didn't like Jesus because he didn't keep the Sabbath in the way they thought he should. He actually healed people on the Sabbath. He helped people. He did good works on the Sabbath, and that didn't fit in with their preconceived notions of what. The Messiah should be doing. They thought, you know, the Messiah was going to come and dress like them and be a Pharisee. And here's this Jesus coming, and he doesn't look like them in his dress. He doesn't speak like them. He speaks authoritatively, and then he does things that they don't approve. And he didn't even bother to get their permission to do it. You know what? What you know? What kind of audacity did he have here? You know, and so they didn't like him at all to the point that they plotted to kill him. I've mentioned this before when I preached on this uh, section of scripture that they also were plotting to kill Lazarus because Lazarus was testifying that, yeah, I was dead and I was raised from dead. People came to hear him. And I pointed this out to my students in our Bible class, and I think I mentioned it from the pulpit. You see the utter stupidity of the Pharisees. They're going to kill Lazarus. Yeah, what happened last time he died, guys? Okay, he, Jesus raised him from the dead. So now you got a brilliant plan. You're going to kill him. Death doesn't work where Jesus is. Okay, and uh, so there's no record of, of Lazarus dying at their hands. We're not told. Church history is, is silent on that, actually. Uh, and so here we have this passage. But we need to understand that what is the the expectation, the fulfillment that's happening here. It really is the complete absolute beginning of the fulfillment of the promise given in Genesis 3.15. From this event in history, that day, kind of like this day, when Jesus got on the colt of a donkey, and it seems the mother was with the, the, the foal also, and they put their clothes on it, if you read the various gospel narratives, and people went before him and they laid their garments down and palm branches, kind of paved the road for the king. Uh, when that was going on, uh, Christ was fulfilling the promise that had been given 
in Genesis 3.15, when God rebuked the serpent and said, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Um, you shall uh, crush his heel, but he shall crush your head. And the word suf means crush. Also can mean bruise. But that's, that's where we get that first promise. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. I've mentioned it before. Uh, the very first promise of redemption. That's why Adam later, he, you know, his wife, who he called Isha at first, which is Hebrew for woman, he called her name um, Eve, or Chava, which means life. And because that's because she was the mother of all living. And so even that day when they expected to die, God had told Adam that in the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat your bread. And that meant Adam's going to get to raise crops and eat bread. And he tells Eve, you're going to have pain now in childbirth. Wait a minute, she won't be killed today? She's going to have children? There'll be difficulty, but God promised that she would have children. Good thing she did or we wouldn't be here, huh? Um, and so there was a promise of redemption, and in wrath, God remembered mercy. And then we read that interesting thing in Genesis. Because remember Adam and Eve, what they did when they hid from the Lord, how they dressed themselves? They made garments of fig leaves and pretty inadequate uh, they were trying to cover their shame. Uh, they couldn't, not with garments. But then God, after he rebuked the serpent and told Adam that the ground was cursed because of Adam, he didn't say Adam was cursed, that is, he wasn't beyond redemption. But then it says, and the Lord God made them coats of skins, and the word in Hebrew means animal hides. And that's why, you know, so animals died that day. And that's why later when Cain and Abel came to worship, Abel knew to bring a blood sacrifice. He brought of the firstlings of his flock. Cain knew that also. Both those boys were old enough to know better. Uh, and Cain just brought the fruit of the ground. Now later, fruits of the ground could be offered as thanksgiving offerings in the temple, but not for sin. And so Cain was just going to bypass the whole sin thing and just thought, well, I'll just present my, my good works here that I've done. And Cain was rejected, but Abel was accepted because he came to God on the basis of a blood sacrifice. And that was teaching them that where there is sin, the penalty is death. And God accepted a substitute that day for Adam and Eve. And that's the whole history of redemption in the Old Testament. You know that. The people that were shouting that day were living under the Mosaic system where, where blood sacrifices were offered in the temple. They saw that. I've mentioned before They've actually found the drain pipes from the uh, temple area because there was so much blood shed in the temple, they couldn't just let it pool on the ground. They had to get it where it would wash away uh, because everybody was bringing their sin offerings and their sacrifices. And that's why Daniel tells us in his prophecy that in the chapter 9 that he will bring sacrifice and offering to an end. That's funny that... There's some of the, generally the system of theology called dispensationalism. This is, oh, that's talking about the Antichrist. He's going to go into the temple in the middle of the tribulation and stop the sacrifice and the offering. It's like, go back and read it again. Daniel chapter 9, the last few verses. It's talking about the Messiah. After three and a half years, he would bring sacrifice and oblation to a halt. The veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. That's also, I believe, in all four Gospels. So, uh, Christ brought him into the Mosaic system because he offered the sacrifice that everything else foreshadowed. God was teaching his people, sin is ugly, it is odious, it re its punishment is death. And they saw a lot of lambs and 
goats and oxen killed. And then finally, the Son of God, as John identified in John the Baptist, as the Lamb of God, Jesus came and he died. And actually, his sacrifice really did take away sin. All the others were pointing to his finished work. And so, the people here are celebrating. Christ hasn't yet to die. He's going to die within a week, within that week. Uh, and so we have the triumphant injury. So we learn some things about crowds and their praises. Uh, some have said, oh, these same people turned on him. And that can be disputed, I think, because it seems that the people that were shouting later, crucify him, crucify him, were people that the uh, high priest and the Pharisees had gathered together. It's probably, And they wanted to do what they were doing as quickly and quietly as possible uh, because they knew Jesus had popular support in, among the people that had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. So these people here are praising the Lord, but within within that week, the triumphant king will be crucified and die. Three days after that, though, he proves himself to be the triumphant king because he rises from the dead victorious, having abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the glorious resurrection. And so Christ is indeed raised from the dead now. In Second uh, Timothy, if you want to turn there, it's a really uh, worthwhile passage to look at in regard to his work. In Second Timothy chapter 1, Paul says in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. And again, I'll point out, as I often do, this is the last letter Paul ever wrote before he was martyred. So this is Paul basically saying goodbye to Timothy. Uh, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, because he was imprisoned in Rome. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Christ has abolished death. We say, well, yeah, people still die, though. Well, the Greek word that Paul used there, because this was written originally in the Greek language, when he says abolish, it's the word, here's your Greek lesson for today, in case you were waiting, um, katargeo, okay, katargeto. All right, and that means to uh, render something idle. It actually can mean make something unemployed. Okay, make someone unemployed. So, because in other words, they're not. It's not capable of doing anything. Uh, inactive, inoperative. It's to cause to cease, to put an end to, to do away with, uh, to make something null and void, or to cancel it. And so, for that's why for the Christians, though our uh, physical bodies are subject still to death because we've not yet been completely redeemed. Our souls have been born again. Our spirits have been born again. Uh, we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, Paul says in Romans 8. And when Christ returns, we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and your body will no longer have lust or corruptions or and won't be affecting your soul, so you're thinking stupid things and sinful stuff. Uh, you'll be able to serve God and praise him with all your heart, Forever. You'll be who you're finally really supposed to be, who God intended you to be. Why? Because for the Christian, we look forward to that. In the meantime, when we physically die, as Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death's sting has been removed by Christ dying in our place. He took the death that we deserve. So 
Our dying is simply entering into God's presence. Christ has abolished death. That's what he did three days later. So when he comes into Jerusalem on the triumphant entry, as the apostles tell us in John, uh, we read it, that they didn't fully understand until after he was glorified what all of this meant. Uh, But Jesus knew. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And so it wasn't just a pretend triumphant entry. He was entering Jerusalem because he knew he was going to die soon. And he also knew he was going to rise again soon for his people. He was doing it not because he needed to, but because he loved us and died for us. And so they had expected Jesus. So we have this this prophecy, actually, that this rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was in Zechariah. That was in the 6th century B.C., I mean in the 500s. And so they knew the Messiah was coming. They knew he was going to enter Jerusalem in that manner. So when they see Jesus coming kind of around the Mount of Olives, um, and they see him begin to approach Jerusalem, and he's riding on a, a, the foal of a donkey, they knew what it meant because they're shouting hallelujah and praise the Lord. And they were told to. Scripture says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. They were praising the Lord. So they, you know, they, they grabbed the palms and, the, uh, and other branches, it says, and then they uh, welcomed Jesus. They were very thankful that he had come. So this was prophetically foretold. And then we see in the passage it was prophetically foretold and beautifully fulfilled and then powerfully proclaimed. That's why we have it now. It's almost 2,000 years since that happened. And we can read about it in our Bibles today. Uh, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, faithful to their callings, wrote down what they had seen and heard, or the testimony of others who were eyewitnesses, as Luke tells us. And they recorded the joy that overflowed that day. And, you know, we do know later, you know, the clouds, you might say, came back, and it got really dark in the sense that, you know, the Pharisees, as Jesus told them, you know, now is your time in the power of darkness, when they arrested him and and, uh, mistreated him horribly and then crucified him. But this day was a bright, beautiful day. You know, I mean, it doesn't say, oh, the weather was good that day. But I think we can gather that this was a day of rejoicing and happiness. Whatever the weather was, I don't think people noticed. It was a spring day in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has, if you look on the weather map, you'll find Jerusalem has very similar weather to us. So it was probably a nice spring day like we're enjoying today. But he had come. He had come and he had abolished death. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 16, Paul talks about the, the mystery of godliness, super important verse. Uh, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness or of piety. And here's, here's what that mystery is. By the way, a mystery in the Bible isn't something you can't figure out. It's something you couldn't have figured out unless God himself told you. Here's the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. That's Jesus. He's God come in the flesh justified in the spirit that is declared to be righteous by the work of the spirit seen by angels word angels can also mean announcers messengers preached among the gentiles that's why we're here today believed on in the world received up into glory christ ascended as you know 40 days after his resurrection he went back 
to heaven sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for his enemies to become the footstool of his feet. And so it's interesting because we read about these people who longed for the Messiah to come and we find ourselves in the same position. We long for the Messiah to come, but this time he's coming again, as it says, to those who look for him shall he return a second time without sin unto salvation, meaning he's not coming the second time to deal with our sins because he dealt with that at his first advent. But he is coming again. The, the song Charles Wesley wrote, Come thou long-expected Jesus. It was true for them that day. It's true for us today. Uh, let me just read that because it's a beautiful poem and it's been set to music and sung. But it, it speaks to what's going on here. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel, strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit. Rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Amen. That's uh, Charles Wesley wrote that in 1744. So, so we have Genesis 3.15, and then from there we have the whole unfolding of the plan of redemption, Christ's return ultimately on the day, the final day of resurrection is when this will be completed and will be brought to the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, one of the very important passages that actually bears on this is Deuteronomy 29.29. That's the verse that says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, and the things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children, that we might do all the words of this law. So it speaks of the secret things of God that are not revealed. Those are things that we don't know about. And we often try to, there's a lot of books being written about what we don't know about, okay? Um, and sometimes I've read a few books and came to the conclusion that the author did not know what he was writing about, okay? But uh, there are hidden things. It's, you know, things just in God's decree that are known to him alone. Some of those would be, when is the, when is the last day? When is the day of resurrection? What day is that? Uh, the exact number of the elect. We don't know who all the elect are. Um, on a personal level, we don't know the day of our own physical death. We don't know the manner of how that's going to happen either. And we don't know if we're going to have good health and wealth or ill health and poverty. Or for that matter, we don't know if we're going to end up having ill health and wealth or good health and poverty. We don't know how our lives are going to play out. Uh, if we're in God's hands, and that's okay if we're trusting Him. And so... We do know, though, these things that we leave in the hands of God. We trust Him, our sovereign God. He's good and can be trusted in every circumstance of life. That much we know. We walk by faith, not by sight. But Deuteronomy 29.29 isn't just talking about the hidden things. We need to look and see. It's talking about the things that are revealed. Zechariah 9.9 is one of those. Uh, it speaks of the things that God has revealed to us in His Word in the Bible. We do not know the day of Christ's return, but we do know the certainty of it. You know, someone says, well, you got to know exactly what day he's going to return. No, you need to know. It's certain, though, he is going to return. That's absolute. When they asked him what day, uh, he said that's it's uh, known to the Father only at that time. So we don't know the exact number of the elect, but we do know it is a vast number, and it includes people from all nations, races, and languages. That's why, you know, they're saying there's no room for racism and all that thing. Not in the church, there certainly isn't, because God has his elect among every kindred tribe, people, and nation, and tongue. So... Revelation chapter 5 teaches us that. I believe it's 5-9. Uh, so the, we, we know those things about the elect. 
So we do know a lot. God has revealed many things to us. Often we don't know because we don't bother to open our Bibles and study them diligently, right? Um, and you can't exhaust the scriptures. You know, I just went through the class two semesters with a group of young people, and we could, we're not going to, I don't think, but we could sit down and go through it again and find out tons of new stuff. You cannot exhaust the written word of God. The things that are revealed are monumental. There's a lot of things there. So we would do well to read our Bibles. So the people at Jerusalem and the Passover pilgrims knew that someday the Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and that uh, when that happened, that that verse in Zechariah would be fulfilled. They rejoiced and they shouted for joy. But the apostles also do add that they themselves didn't fully comprehend the implications of those events until the triumphant entry after Jesus was glorified. I do think that there's a similar thing with us, with the events of our lives when we're before the Lord. I think we're going to see uh, there was a lot more providence every moment of our existence at work than we realized, and that God really was guiding us and directing us and protecting us and looking out for us. So we have this prophecy fulfilled. We have it proclaimed in the scriptures. So what does all this mean? Well, for us, by way of application, uh, we need to remember that Christ is risen from the dead. The king has come. He did enter Jerusalem. And then he accomplished that work of redemption. He's seated at the right hand of God in heaven right now, victorious and ruling, as it says in Scripture, waiting till his enemies become the footstool of his feet. It's going to happen. And he is going to return. You're going to see Jesus. He's coming back. Well, this also means for us, there's several things, seven things, so real quick. You can trust him. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit's on earth. The Holy Spirit's in heaven. Christ hears your prayers. He works in you. You can trust him in all your problems and difficulties. Whatever you're going through, you can say, Lord Jesus, please help me. And if you're trusting him, and by the way, trusting him doesn't mean you've done everything right. It means you're trusting him. It means you're asking him for help. He won't turn you away. You find anybody in the New Testament that came to Jesus for help in faith that he turned away, and I'd be surprised. You find some people that went away from him, the rich young ruler and the crowds, because they didn't like what he was saying, but you never find Jesus rejecting someone in need when they came to him for help. That's why the people loved him. And even some who couldn't ask for help, he helped, like Lazarus, okay? I uh, raised him from the dead. So you can trust him in all your difficulties and all your problems. If you're trusting him for all your salvation, he has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. So you can know he will help you. Trust him. The more you trust him, the more you're going to see him work. That doesn't mean if you know if, he, if you're sick, you shouldn't take your medicine. What it means is that you thank God and pray that he bless the means and help you to get better. Nothing is more important than eternity and knowing your creator. That would be the third thing. God created you. You exist because of his good pleasure. Whatever you're doing, and I hope it's important and might be important to you, and it probably is important in the, in the you know, scheme of things, but nothing is more important than knowing your Creator and your Redeemer. And God ordained our lives so that we can know Him and be productive in life. So it's not like, oh, I guess you want me to be a monk or a nun or something. No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that take the Lord first. Start your day with the Lord. Memorize Scripture. Read it. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. Because he's loved you with an everlasting love. And to get to know him, Jesus said, this is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. <clears throat> so nothing's more important than that. Uh, and then remember, we love him because he first loved us. It was evident in the crowd that day. Uh, though perhaps 
uh, based too much on their seeing and hearing about the miracles he'd done. But they, they, they were happy. It seems that they really loved the Lord. They were thankful for what, at least what they knew. The disciples grew in their understanding of who Jesus was and is, and so do we. Abide in him is what the Bible says. Jesus said that, abide in me. And if my word abides in you and you abide in me, he said, you'll ask whatever you want and it'll be granted to you. Because if you're abiding in him, you're going to ask for the things you ought to be asking. So abide in him would be number four. Number five, find those who love him and make them your best friends. You know, it's amazing. You know, they say a man becomes like the people he hangs around with or girl or woman. Uh, we do become like the people with whom we associate. And it's some, in the world, you know, you have to interact with people and you don't give them a religious quiz before you do business with them. Uh, Paul talks about that in Corinthians. But it is important to know we ought to be making our friends among godly people. And I'm not talking about pious hypocrites or, you know, I'm talking about people that really love the Lord and, and love other people. Those are the people you should be focusing on as your friends because they generally are going to be a lot less likely to stab you in the back, okay? Uh, but whether that's even in focus at that point, the main thing is if you find people that love the Lord, how do you know what's in their heart? What comes out of their mouth, okay? But find people that love the Lord. You know, talk's cheap. Find people that, that love the Lord, that do talk about Christ, that love him. Because, you know, if you love somebody, I mentioned this plenty of times before, if you love somebody, you're going to talk about them, okay? That's why grandparents brag on their grandkids and, you know, parents on their children and husbands on their wives and sometimes even the wives on their husbands, okay? Because if you love somebody, they're in your heart and you're going to want to talk about them. It might bore some people or maybe they have to sit through all your photos or something or now flipping through your phone. But if you love someone, you're going to talk about them. So when you're choosing your friends, ask yourself, have I ever had a conversation about Christ or the Bible with this person? Or would it just be too awkward if I brought it up with that individual? If that's the case, you might want to consider being nice to that person, but not have them as a super, super close best friend, okay? And I'll let you figure out how to implement that. But my point is, it's not talking about break-off friendships necessarily, but I'm talking about find people that love the Lord. You know where you can find people like that? In a gospel-preaching church, okay? So find those that love the Lord. Grow together with them. And if you find that they're not perfect, neither are you, so you're in the right group, okay? The imperfect people that love Jesus because he loves them. That's number five. Six is real simple. Learn to pray, depending on Christ's intercession and his mediation for you. Call on God in the name of Jesus Christ. And finally also then, learn to praise him. You know, a lot of people pray. But we don't want to just be dour when we're doing it. Praise is an important part. You know the whole book of Psalms in Hebrew that, that they don't. It's not the book of Psalms in, in the Hebrew language. It's Tehalim. It's that's the word it means. The book of praises. Sefer means book of, and then Tehalim. So it's the Sefer Tehalim, and we ought to have God's praises in our hearts continually, whether Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, the things we were singing earlier. You know. Uh, it's great. I really thank God, like during the week sometimes, when just uh, one of the hymns we've sung has come to mind. And I'll, I find myself singing it without necessarily even thinking about it. And then it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And, you know, I'd rather have your praise in my heart than some other dumb thought that I might cook up or some, some worldly song that I heard on the radio or something. So learn to praise him. So trust him. Call on him for help. Know him. Love him. 
Find those that also love him and make them your associates and friends. Grow together in Christ with his people as you abide in him. Learn to pray depending on Jesus as your mediator because he's the one that took away your sins. He's the one that presents your prayers to the Father. And so learn to pray and, and pray daily. The Bible actually says pray without ceasing. There's a, there's a call for us, isn't it? That means be in an attitude of prayer at all times. And then finally learn to praise him. You know, sing his praise and worship him because he's worthy of it. He's our Savior. He's our triumphant King. And may God fill our hearts with that overflowing joy, not just with the daughter of Zion and the daughter of Jerusalem, as it was said in Zechariah, had that day when things were beginning to be fulfilled. But we live in a time when our redemption has been accomplished and now it's being applied. We wait for the full application, but it has been fully Accomplished. Jesus said, it is finished, right before he died on the cross. He had completed everything necessary to save you and me so we can praise his name. So that triumphant entry is something we ought to still be celebrating today. And I hope you'll continue to celebrate it today, this week, next Sunday, and every day of your life until the Lord returns. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We thank you for the events that took place uh, in Jerusalem many centuries ago, but that you had recorded for us so we could read and know what was said and done. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to trust you in these things we've talked about. We pray you would bring them about in our lives. Lord, we can't do it if you don't do it in us and for us. But we thank you that you do work within us. You move our wills and our hearts so that we will endeavor to know you and to walk with you and to walk with your people. We ask you to bless each one that's here, Lord. Keep us in your love and grace. For we ask all of this with the forgiveness of all our sins. In the name of your Son, our Mediator and High Priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.